You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Joining me on the Freedom Pack podcast today is Chris Robertson, the front man of one of my favorite bands of all time, Blackstone Cherry. Chris, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well. I'm good, brother. It's a real pleasure to have you. I first became a fan of yours back in, I think, 2007. I would have been about 10 or 11 years old, and I just convinced my mother to buy me SmackDown versus Raw on the PlayStation 2. That's and awesome. uh, Lonely Train was uh, was the song. And me and my brother used to play the game so much. And we became obsessed with that song. And then we went out and found the album and became friends from there. And um, I was just reflecting on that today because I first uh, saw Blackstone Cherry um, in Cardiff Student Union back in 2011. Um, quite an intimate venue. And now you're embarking on a UK arena tour. You're, you're coming back to Cardiff but you're playing, you know, the international arena. So it's been quite a journey over those 10 years or so. Um, it's great to see you doing so well. So where I'd like to start with the interview is a lot of people um, may look at you now, but watching this and they only see the success. They see the arena shows, they see the, you know, the, the hit singles, but they may not be familiar with the, with the struggle. I wonder if you could talk to me about the early grind of being a musician and what it looked like before anyone was listening. Yeah, man. I remember, you know, when we first started out, it was uh, it was different. You know, there was a, a decent music scene around home with rock and roll. But, you know, the, the vast majority of bands around here were more, you know, country laning, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, we, we started, we kind of started gaining more shows and gaining a little traction. People started digging us a little bit. I think maybe just because they were forced to hear us nonstop, they... <laughs> They, they kind of fell into it a little bit, but man, you know, the early days on the road, I remember coming over doing that first tour in 2007 where we played like the Guildhall in Portsmouth and a, a few other places. I think maybe not the Guildhall, I can't remember the name of the venue. It was a smaller venue though. Um, but we did like, you know, the, the small academies, all the, the smaller venues. And I remember that first tour, it went really well. Not, not a lot of the shows sold out, but we played the Astoria. It was the last show on Halloween night and it was sold out and we went back home and the next show we played was for 22 people in Dallas, Texas at a place called club firewater. So it's, you know, it's, it's truthfully, it's, it's always a struggle. You know, yes, we've been very fortunate and, and we're able to be very successful in the UK and across Europe and everything. But, you know, in the States it's we're we're still building from the ground up, you know, we're, we play some nights and we'll have 300 people. Some nights we'll have, you know, 800. It just, it does, it, 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 it really, you're not sure, you know, but it seems like everything's steadily getting bigger and better. And, and we're happy for that. You know, if anything you have to earn, you're going to appreciate more than if it's handed to you. So we're okay with it. So for you personally, when you're a, a musician, um, before like a big break comes along, like the first album or, you know, as I mentioned, Lonely Train, you know, really making its way into the mainstream. 
what was that period of time like when you're chasing a dream and you're not kind of you're not sure if it's going to pay off i'm sure you played a lot of gigs where not many people turned up or you weren't you know making as much money as you you would have liked to at the time what what were those days like man i mean hell we still still live in those days some nights you know it's um it's it's the nature of the business we're in and especially after the last several years that we've had to deal with that it's you know, you never know what the music business is going to be anymore. But I, I remember back when we were, you know, trying to get a record deal and, and being turned down by record labels and, and just that constant struggle of what do we have to do to, to get it right, you know, for someone to believe in us, you know, on a big scale, you know. And it's the, the struggle of it is is that, is being told no. And a lot of people, you know, would have said, well, we went to New York and tried it, you know, and had one of the biggest, I mean, we had Atlantic tell us no, you know, that not right now, you know, and that's, that was the dream for us was to go get signed to the label that had, you know, Led Zeppelin and it didn't happen for us. And on the way home, we found out they decided to pass and we were like, well, who's next? Hmm. you know, it wasn't a hang our heads and go back home and tuck tail and run. It was okay. Well, they don't want us. Fuck it. Who's who, who else is on the docket that we can go, play our music for and, and see if they're going to check it out, you know, and lo and behold, we ended up doing a, another round of showcasing and uh, Roadrunner was the place that we landed. And, you know, after all the years at Roadrunner, um, now we're with Mascot. And it's funny because the same guy that was at Roadrunner is now the president at Mascot. So it's, you know, it's what we've known him a long time and, and he's been a believer in us for a long time. So we're very thankful for that. And you've, I was watching a couple of your interviews this week um, and you've talked very openly and, and, and honestly about, you know, your battles with, with mental health um, throughout the years. I was wondering, when did you get to the point where you realized um, that you were battling a mental health issue? Because for a lot of people, they don't, they don't even know what that is. Um, especially, you know, if you roll back 10, 20 years ago, this wasn't something that was being talked about a lot. When did you reach the point where you realized what it was and you realized that there were options out there to get help? Man, it was, it was 2011 and I just gotten to a point where nothing made me happy anymore. You know, I mean, I, I didn't play my guitar at home. I wasn't doing anything. And, uh, and then it got the darkest, you know, someone could get and still be alive. And, uh, and, you know, I, I just, I finally kind of snapped and, and said, I've got to get some fucking help. And, you know, and I, I finally, through some great friends of mine, I, I was able to get in contact with a great doctor and, and start my journey back to, back to feeling like myself again, you know, and dude, I take medicine every day. You know, I take my antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication every day. And I'm totally okay with that because I would much rather be the best version of me that I can in a fucked up world than be the worst version of myself in a fucked up world. If that, that makes sense at all, you know, um, and I, I got a kid, you know, he depends on me. You know, I, I lost my dad. <clears throat> um, and I know what that did to me, you know, and it, it put me in a bad place again for a while. And, uh, you know, I just want to be around for him and my wife, my family, as long as I can, man, you know, yeah, it's, I, I love you and you talk about this stuff, Marcus. It's really important. And, and you put yourself out there in quite a vulnerable um, position that you're in. I spoke 
about a month ago to to Brent Smith, uh, lead singer of Shinedown. And he was, you know, very similar to yourself, really open and honest about these topics and why it's important. Why do you feel it's so important to be open and honest in these interviews? Because I know for a lot of people, they'd struggle to talk to anyone about this, let alone the media, let alone the world. So how come you're so comfortable doing that now? And why do you think it's important? Because I don't want anybody to end up in the way I was, man. You know, I mean, I don't care. You can, people can talk shit about me all they want. They can say anything they want about me. I would much rather somebody have something negative to say about me because I'm open about this stuff than, you know, than someone who's struggling feel like they can't say anything. Because ultimately, you know, I, I think that's part of why I ended up as bad as I did because in society as men, we're, we're told, you know, to, to suck it up, tough shit, you know, figure it out, move on, do your thing. You know, guys, men don't cry. And yeah, it's just one of those things, man. It's society's brought us up that way with, you know, the kind of that John Wayne mentality. And, you know, you, as a man, you probably, you know, you need a little bit of that in you, a little bit of that. Okay. Just suck it up, move on. But at the same time, man, you, you also got to remember that you're a human being and you got to be able to move too. You know, you got to be able to be yourself and not, you know, feel like you can't talk about anything. You know, that that's, that's a huge thing is, you know, suicide rates have been so much higher in men for so long. And I think it's simply because of the fact that we've been, felt like we couldn't talk about it, you know? And to that, I say, fuck that, dude. It's like, you know, people should be able to talk about their problems regardless of their gender. I don't give a shit. I don't care what your gender is, what your religion is, you know, how much money you make, what your social status is. If you got something you need to talk about, you ought to be able to talk about it to somebody. Not regardless of, of who you are. And for you, you grew up in the South uh, in America, a place where I imagine um, topics like mental health, especially back then, weren't really explored and I'm, I'm assuming you were you know deep in the, the the sort of mindset of you know men have to be the tough guys they need to just get up and get on with it what was it like growing up in that environment and and what was the approach to mental health in that part of America at the time you know I mean as a kid I I, I remember seeing my dad struggle you know um and my dad was one of the strongest people I know. He fought cancer like nobody's business, man, you know, as, as much as he could. But um, my dad, I remember I'd see him struggling, but he just, he'd keep it all in, you know. And then I would see, you know, that that outburst every now and then or, or just, you know, and it, it was, I never quite understood it until I got older and started feeling some of those same ways and noticed some of those same traits, you know. And I think, you know, especially up until, like you said, about 10 years ago or so, even in the last five, really, mental health has become more of a talking subject amongst men. It, really, the last five years, um, you know, I remember when I first came out and talked about my stuff, you know, people were posting that, you know, I was, uh, I remember one of the comments said, why didn't you just do it, you pussy? And then there were comments of, pictures where a gun where the handle was reversed where the barrel would be pointing at a person holding the gun and all these really really nasty things when I came out and first talked about this stuff and I remember I was standing in Walmart with my wife who we were grocery shopping and I was just scrolling you know just seeing what people were saying 
I had tears coming down my face after seeing a lot of that stuff. And I was like, this is why people won't talk about this because people do shit like this and make them feel this way. And then, but the next comment right after that was, thank you so much for having the courage to speak on this. And I decided at that moment that that was the route I was going to take. I didn't care what people said. I was just going to roll with the fact that, you know, if there's a chance that me speaking about this can help one person, then it's worth all the shit that I can catch. It, you know, it definitely does, man. And as as you alluded to there, you you got to a to a, to a pretty dark uh, place. I I watched an interview with you this morning where you were you t- you were talking about you were you were looking at a shotgun on on the wall and um and and you know having the darkest of darkest thoughts. In those moments, what gave you hope? Man, the only thing I can think of is God. Really, I mean, something had to stop me. And, you know, that I'm not saying that's what everybody has to believe. You don't have to believe me. That's what happened to me. But in my heart and in, in my soul, I truly believe that God or some kind of higher power intervened in my life somehow. And that's why I'm still here, man. You know, that and the support of my family and, and friends, you know. But when you're by yourself and and you're you're going through those thoughts, and you're walking out the door and something just feels like you just cement it in the ground. You can't move anymore. You start crying, something changes and you can't really explain it. And it's, that's the only thing I can think of, man, you know, and that's, that's my opinion. You know, I, I don't expect everyone to believe me, but I don't, I don't have to have you to, you know? So recently in the last year, um, I've been going to to talking therapy. I've been seeing a therapist and 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 seeing firsthand how, how that impacted myself. And before I went there, I didn't really know what to expect. I I, I always thought this type of thing would be be useless, a waste, you know, a waste of my money, quite an expensive luxury. But I've definitely seen the benefits since doing so. For you, when you made the decision to to see a therapist and and start this talking therapy, what were your um, preconceived notions of therapy going into it and now you've been through it how important of a process would you say that was it was massively important for me um i mean you know i've said this before i don't know how many people know it but the day that between the devil and the deep blue sea came out i spent that morning in the psychiatrist's office for the first time ever um left there we went and did a meet and greet at a local shop and then i got on a plane and went to to europe um literally all the same day um we um you know it it's insane man to to look back and and go through that i mean you know we're putting out our third record the record that had in my blood blame it on the boom boom white trash making there all these beautiful and you know great songs that have done so well for us and i was at such a bad place that i, I sat in there and i was terrified man going into that office that day because you know, what you see is on TV, you got some guy sitting over with a notepad and you're, you know, somebody sitting on a couch talking and, but it wasn't really like that. You know, he did take notes and stuff, but it was the amazing thing about it was, you know, maybe not that very first day and maybe not within the first 30 minutes, but, you know, as time went on, you get to go and you get to talk to this person and it's, Obviously, you can talk to your friends. You can talk to the people that know you better than anybody. But every time you're doing that, you know what those people, you kind of know what kind of how those people think and how those people feel about certain things. 
and it's it's not always easy to speak openly to people even people that you love and trust about things that are bothering you inside hmm. you know but when you go to someone that doesn't know you from anyone else in the world and they've dedicated their whole lives to trying to help people get past these things you start to get at least for me i started to get a lot more comfortable and able to talk and be honest and open because if you go to therapy and you're not honest with the people you're talking to you're you're doing yourself a disservice because yeah. at that point you might as well not even go you know yeah so for you, uh, a songwriter who's you've written, you know, so many um, uh, emotional and, and powerful songs. To what extent would you say that music and and songwriting has has helped you process your emotions? Because I imagine songwriting can almost be a form of therapy in itself. Sometimes it's probably my number one form of therapy um, because it's the one time that you know you feel like, at least for me, when we're inside a song. I feel like I can say anything that's on my mind because I'm delivering it in a different way. You know, it's, and it's, you can also kind of tear down the walls you put up in front of you and just be completely honest because that, that song, you know, is, is a moment that, you know, that, that comb that equaled up to something in your life that stuck with you, you know, at at least the, the serious songs, you know, I mean, songs like Blame It on the Boom Boom, obviously, are just about having one hell of a good time. <laughs> but, you know, you look at a song, even like Out of Pocket, that, that's a very deep lyrical song. <laughs> and it's, you know, these last couple of years have been rough, man. You know, and it's, I, I think we've all kind of got out of pocket a little bit, you know, and had to readjust and relearn how to get back to normal living after this crazy shit we've been through. But, you know, it's... Um, I don't know, man. It's just, we try to write songs about stuff that we know and we've lived through and, and truly understand because if, if not, if we started writing about, you know, running across the heels of Wales, I don't know shit about that. I know about playing rock and roll shows in Wales, but you know, it's, we, we just try to think about all the stuff that we, uh, that, you know, stuff we've lived and, and things that mean something to us. I wonder because a lot of these songs uh, are quite emotional. Are there any st- songs in your back catalog um, that you struggle with? I, I I watched your performance of Things My Father Said at, at the Albert Hall on YouTube this morning, and it's an unbelievably emotional uh, performance. I, I encourage everyone to go and listen to it. But are there any songs in the Blackstone Cherry back catalog that you really struggle to perform on stage? Man, that one's probably the the hardest one, and you know, when my dad passed, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to sing that song again. Cause we originally wrote that song about some of our friends and, you know, other family members that had passed. Um, and then when, when daddy passed, my brother and sister wanted to play things my father said at his funeral. So we did that, um, you know, and we just played the album version over the speakers. But when we went to the UK, I wanted to do it. I took my dad's guitar with me to play it with, um, and the first night, I just could not bring myself to do it. But ever since then, I've done it. I mean, that song is one that's that's never going to be easy to sing anymore. I think. And then there's a song off of uh, off of the Human Condition called "When Angels Learn to Fly." That's uh, that was written about my mother-in-law uh, right after she passed. And 
I've never done that one live. I, mm. I, you know, I, my wife's asked me to sing it a few times and at shows and I just, I've never been able to get the courage up to do that one yet, you know? Um, maybe one day, you know, but there's, there's songs that definitely, you know, hit on certain things, but the, the biggest one that I've ever struggled with performing live is probably things my father said. I was watching or reading an interview of yours and you highlighted this quote by Dave Grohl. Uh, you said the beautiful thing about music is you can stand on stage and sing a song to 80,000 people and they'll sing it back to you for 80,000 different reasons. Um, and in that sentiment, what does performing live on stage do for you on a personal level? Do you prefer it to putting together, you know, singles and records? I mean, for me, it's 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 the healthy yin and yang balance of both, you know, because when you're when you're creating music for a single or for a record or whatever, for whatever you're doing that for for forever. That is a moment that is forever stamped in time, you know, whether it's just an MP3 file that thirty six people listen to. That's a moment that you crafted in time. Performing live is is a whole different thing. It's it's that ability to walk on stage and try to connect with everybody in the room and get everybody in the room feeling like one big unit, you know. And that I have to have both, you know, for me, um, because obviously, you know, songwriting is a huge outlet just for for mental health. Um, playing is too, but but songwriting is where. You know, you really get into those demons sometime and let them come out and uh, and talk about them to where playing live is where, you know, playing live is, is, is essentially what makes people like us feel completely alive. You know, it's it's the one thing that that we put our minds to that we thought we could do forever. And <clears throat> to be given that opportunity and have people show up to want to see it, it just it's the most alive feeling, man, you could imagine. You mentioned that you, you know, you see a lot of success in the UK and in Europe um, rather than, you know, just back home in America. I, I wonder what a balance is like for you between making sure that your personal, that your family life is, you know, is good and, and sort of marrying that with all the long miles, you know, overseas for, for weeks, months on end, because I think we all you know, we'll come to see you live. We'll see you for an hour, two hours. It looks, you know, it looks great. It looks like a glamorous life, but we don't see you get back on the bus and, you know, haul 200 miles across the country in the middle of the night. What is it like balancing that lifestyle with, you know, what wanting to, to, to keep the family lifestyle, the personal lifestyle, the way you like? It's, it's all about balance. And that's, that's the key word there, man. It's, you know, for me, honest to God, my wife is a saint and she does everything when I'm gone. She's a nurse that works, you know, 12 hour shifts. She takes care of our 10 year old, keeps the house, the animals all taken care of. She's, she's a fucking saint, man. I don't know how else to put it. Um, you know, without her, I couldn't do this. There, there, there's no way possible because I know that when I leave home, that her and Declan and the animals and everything are going to be taken care of. My grandma will be taken care of because that's just the kind of person she is. You know, um, I, I, I mean, really, I couldn't do it without her. You know I mean? If, if the world fell apart and I had Blackstone cherry and Ashley and my family left, I could still make it all work. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. Um, 
one thing I'd love to ask you about is I, I read that there was a time um, where a record label uh, told you that you, you had to lose weight to become more successful. How do you combat that sort of temptation to follow the trends of, of what a record label, you know, was telling you will garner you success and, 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 and attention? How do you sort of combat that with staying true to yourself and who you are? Well, I wanted to send him a copy of our Live at the Royal Albert Hall DVD or, you know, the Birmingham one or, or the Live at Download Records or some of that <laughs> stuff. I wanted to be really facetious and just send some of that stuff and say hey, I had a cupcake afterwards. Um, <laughs> but 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 no, man, you know, I you just kind of it really bothered me for a long time, you know, because I've always been a bigger dude. Um, but then honestly, man, I it got kind of out of hand. I got unhealthily big um, and. I've lost about 90 pounds over the last couple of years. Um, I'm under 200 pounds for the first time since high school. So okay. I'm happy about that. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I'm, I am happy to thank you. I'm, and I'm happy to be feeling better and feeling healthier. But man, you know, that was just part of the business back then. You know, I mean, it, as as shitty as that sounds, I can't imagine what some of the women in the music business went through in the 2000s and 90s. You know, because this was the early 2000s and it was, you know, a bunch of redneck dudes from Kentucky. And they're like, well, the singer needs to lose 25 pounds or I don't know if we can, you know, be very successful. So, I, you know, I did what I could, but couldn't do it. I lost 15 of it uh, back then. But, man, you know, it, I think I think some people can only see the trees. They don't see the forest. You know, they, they just see a row of trees. And like, oh, that's a pretty bunch of trees. But if you step inside them, you see that, there's a whole different ecosystem there that's absolutely beautiful. And just because it's not the one they've been looking at, they can't see it. And that that's okay, man. You know, like I didn't want to lose weight strictly because of, I thought I looked bad. I wanted to lose weight because dude, I have high blood pressure, you know, like I, I've got reasons to want to not, you know, be unhealthy. I've you know, I got a family, you know, I want to be around for a while, but <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, man. I, I'll never be a person that agrees with someone telling someone that because of their physical appearance that they'll never be successful, you know, or they're not going to be as successful as someone else because truthfully, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is not a great looking man, but he's been successful in life. You know, he's pretty damn smart too, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's just, man, you know, people have opinions and they're all like assholes. They all stink one way or another. And it, it is what it is, you know, that was one of those things, though, that it really bothered me. It, it really put a thing in my head for a long time that I was the reason, you know, that we didn't have a number one song because, you know, Lonely Train was great, but the singer was a hefty dude, so that's why they didn't play it, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, it, it really stuck with me. But then at some point, you just put that stuff out of your mind, man. You go, that guy didn't know anything he was talking about. We've had a great career thus far, and we only plan to make it greater from here on out. With the way that you see the the music industry changing these days, it seems to be going more and more in, in that direction of, you know, uh, image and a, and a clear cut, uh, polished finish to it. Do you think, how do you think you would have handled if you were starting out in the music business today? Would it be different to, to would it be a different story? Uh, I'm sure we would sound different. You know, mm. I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm sure we would sound different. I'd, I don't know. I'm sure we would all look kind of similar, you know, but the I, I would be willing to bet the sound would be different because there would be another, you know, 
20 years of, of influences on us, you know, before we ever made our first album. Um, you know, the band starting out today, it's a different world, man. Like we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Instagram when we started. The only thing there was, was MySpace and your top eight, you know? So we had MySpace and then we would go out and we would, dude, we would make flyers for our shows that we were playing and we would have 30 people show up, but we would go to every newspaper bin open them, put the money and open them up and stick a flyer in every newspaper, you know? And it, it was, you know, like $3 to advertise to a hundred newspapers. It was awesome. You know, we did it like that back in the day to where now, you know, you would send out a Snapchat or an Instagram blast or something like that, you know, to, to do it. But the other side of that coin <clears throat> is when we got our record deal, a band didn't necessarily have to have, you know, a hundred thousand followers or 50,000 followers and already have a following. What it's done, in my opinion, you know, if a band's got a hundred thousand followers and they're selling shows, what do they need a record label for? You know, it's like they're already doing a big part of that. For bands like us, we came out in a time where you needed a record label to get you in front of people, you know, and that's what we've always known. So we're happy with that, you know. Um, new band—it's difficult, you know. It's not as easy to get your to get your foot all the way through the door anymore. I'd say it's easier to, you know, to send your, to send your package to someone than it used to be, but it's not as easy to walk through the door as it used to be, you know, because imagine how many bands are being flooded to record labels or management companies every single day now with the way the internet has expanded as to, you know, in 2003, 2004, five, when we were you know trying to get a record deal, it was a whole different game. Yes. You had lots of bands, but, you know, you had to work your way in through all these things and then find the right person to get your stuff to. And now it's, you know, people get famous off of what SoundCloud rappers. I mean, it's crazy, man. But I, I'm so happy for musicians that we've gotten to a point where you can make it on your own now. You know, you can you can set up in your bedroom and and make music. And if you make the music that touches you and it touches someone else, you know, just look at what Billie Eilish and Phineas did. They made all those records in her bedroom. You know, one of the sounds, one of the bass drops, they mic'd up Billie's, um, uh, her desk because there were screws rattling in it with the sound she had. And it's just little stuff like that. You know, there was no big time producer. There was nobody calling saying, hey, we need a song like this. We need a song like this. It was just two kids in a room making music. You know, and I love that, that we're getting back to more of that. So, as I mentioned earlier, you are about, I think, eight days or so out from embarking on a UK tour, uh, Blackstone Cherry and The Darkness. It's kind of a dream gig for me, two of my favorite bands. And you you kick things off in, in Wales. Um, and then, you know, the next day, I think you're, you're off to England to do multiple shows there. Whilst you're doing a, a tour like this, where, you, you know, you're, you're hauling miles overnight and you're in a different city every night, how do you manage to, you know, keep your, what, what is your personal routine like? Because I imagine if you, you roll up your sound check, it's not long you're on stage, you're traveling. I can't imagine there's much time to maybe have some self-care in there. How do you manage to sort of stay sane through all the chaos? Admittedly, the four of us have the least amount of physical work a day. It's all, you know, the crew, all those guys, all the local crew, the, the staging crew, the PA crew. Because yeah, you have a crew for everything in an arena show because it all has to be torn down and set up every day. Um, 
<laughs> so admittedly, we have the, the least amount of a physical workload. What we have to do on those days is it's, you know, interviews all day because you're doing an arena show and there's a lot of press requests, stuff like that. It's a lot of that, but, you know, I for me, I try to sometime right, uh, right around uh, after the, the dinner catering, I'll try to go take a nap for about an hour and just kind of recharge myself. And it's, I'm old man, man. I, I got to get in here. I'll be seven. I got to go take my nap before we go out and play a hour and a half rock and roll show. But uh, I mean, that's pretty much it, man. I, I'm I'm pretty relaxed. We're, we're all pretty boring. We sat around me and uh, me and one of the other crew guys. If we have time, we like to run around to shops, look for Pokemon cards, stuff like that. But I mean, man, for the most part, I, I'm a nerd. I like to play Pokemon on my Switch and then do the interviews and do the show, man. You know, it's. It's uh, it's pretty simple, you know. It's it's hectic, but it's a simple setup, and it's, you know, as long as we got a schedule of what we're doing the next day, the day before, it's all pretty easy. You kind of plan out what you're going to do. You know, you get into a routine. This is our first tour since November, so it may take a couple of days to get back into the get our bus legs back and get back into the the touring routine. But it'll be great. Man, can't can't wait for it. Now, as we start to wind down, just one or two questions left. Um, We've talked a lot today about your your journey to where you are now, all the struggles along the way, um, of finally you know seeing the light starting to see the success. What advice would you give to someone out there who's you know chasing a dream right now? They're not sure if it's going to work out. You know they're having doubts. Should they give up? What what would your best advice be to someone out there who has a dream right now? Whether it's music, whether you want to be an artist, doctor, whatever you want to do, make sure it's what you want to do for you. And then once you're sure that that is the path you want to take, take no fucking prisoners, man. Do everything in your power to be the best at your position you can. You know, it's, man, and for me, it's like, you know, it's it's intimidating a lot of nights when we, we're on tour because I'm a singer that plays guitar. A lot of bands we tour with have guitar players and then a singer, yeah. you know, so they got a singer running around on stage. It's crazy as shit. I'm standing there playing guitar singing, man, you know, so it's like it's uh it's it's different, but you have to you have to be unapologetically you and be proud of that and own who you are. You know, I mean, dude, we've had setbacks all through our career. We've we've had moments where we've tried things and it didn't work, but you just get back up, man, and and, and keep doing it because anything that you set your mind to I'm a firm believer that you can achieve those things if you really put the right amount of effort into it. Absolutely love that. So you know, I'm not going to say that I'm ever going to be a world champion bodybuilder because that <laughs> shit just ain't in the cards for me. Because number one, I ain't got the, the. I'm too lazy to do it. You know, but I've I've said, well, I could. I want to play guitar for the rest of my life, and then singing just kind of happened, you know, and then. Once I found out that I was going to be the singer, I was like, okay, I want to sing for the rest of my life. I got to work the debt really hard, you know, and dude, I learned stuff every single day. I mean, it's, you know, God, God rest Jeff Beck. I've been watching Jeff Beck stuff and it's just like, you sit down and you're like, I think I know how he's doing that. And you grab your guitar and you're around bar and you're like, nope, not how he did it. You know, and that's, but that's the beauty of anything we do, you know, never, never, never stop learning, never stop trying to learn more stuff, you know, and just, do it man you know just just fuck everything else do it just go for it at least give it a shot because if you don't you'll never know and what if is the worst question to have to ask yourself amen brother so 
two quick questions that I ask every guest that comes on the show, mm-hmm. no matter what the topic. I've asked them to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'll ask them to you now, but I'll put a little spin on the first one. Um, I normally ask a guest for three books that have massively influenced their life, but with a, a, a musical guest like yourself, I'd love to ask you for maybe two to three artists that have had a massive impact on your life. Bob Marley. Um, I mean, that's the first one. I just when I went through all my stuff, Bob Marley was was what I listened to day and night. I still I've got the lyrics to Three Little Birds tattooed on my Love hand. It. Love I mean, it. you know, um, I would say Bob Marley, um, and then I'm trying to go, you know, songs here and not just musicianship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, songs that really, I mean, man, Aerosmith have written some great songs. Um, you know, I don't I don't know if I would put them in the top three. Yeah, I'm going to say Bob Marley. I'm just going to give you two, man. The the two musicians that have influenced me the most and, and been the biggest for me. Um, Bob Marley, my dad, man. You know, my dad was never a famous musician, but he was the best damn guitar player Southern Kentucky's ever seen, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, he was regarded around here as one of the best guitar players. He, he played locally doing cover gigs and, He's why I wanted to play music, man. And then Bob Marley and his message and music really reshaped my life. And uh, those would be my biggest two, man. You know, the the third one we'll have to we'll have to catch up with next time. <laughs> Love it, man. Those are two really great answers. Um, the the last question I have for you. So this could be anything. It could be you know your work, your family, whatever it comes to mind. But for Chris Robertson right now, what makes life worth living? Family. That just that's it. Dude. You know, we've I lost a dear friend a couple of weeks ago, um, thirty eight years old to cancer. You know, never you never see things like that coming. Um, you know, I mean, trust me, I I love what I do for a living. I love music. I I love a lot of things in life, but there is nothing like family. And it's you know, it I'm so thankful that my wife and child are as understanding as they are of the career that I chose. And that, you know, I'm pretty sure my wife heard me get the hell out of the house. I've been home since November. So she's like, please get on the road. I'm tired of looking at your ass at this point. But but no, man, family is is if if, if I lost everything in the world and I still had them too, I'd be okay. I love it. So as I mentioned, you're just about to embark on a on a UK tour. I will leave all the links below if there are any tickets left, if anyone's listening, wants to check out if it's going to be in a town or city near them. Um, the new single, Out of Pocket, I'll link that below. Um, other than that, is there any way you'd like to direct these guys listening, where they could maybe find you on social media or where they can check out your work? I'm on social media personally, CBRBSC. That's my Instagram. That's the only thing I really use. Um, it, it's linked to my Facebook, but Facebook's kind of not really a thing as much anymore um so i just do instagram but it's cbrbsc it's my initials band's initials then of of course blackstone cherry official to find anything you need there's links in the bio there to to find tour dates all that stuff but the the main thing i want to say man is is it ain't about me it's not about the band thank you guys so much for the support for what we've created over the last 20 years and and we can't wait to keep doing it for another 40 beautiful well i can't wait to come and watch you in that Cardiff show. I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, brother. It means the world.